This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals.
across the, across the landscape and it comes all the way back and it impacts us at the job level. So I want to talk about siege today, but I want to go into the weeds a little bit and we'll give you a little bit of a history lesson in the process. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. So what is UX? What is user experience? Well, basically user experience, and I like to define it this way, user experience involves a set, a very broad set of methods, methodologies, techniques, deliverables, functionalities, and all of these things come together. They're used, you go into the toolbox, you take a wrench, you take a screwdriver, you take a hammer, you take a saw, you take all these different things, which of course different aspects of UX are represented by those metaphorical tools that I just mentioned, and you put them together, and when you're done, you're able to, to achieve the sweet spot between user needs, business needs, and any constraints that you might be faced with. So it is our job to, to achieve wins for the business, advocate and obtain wins for the users, and do it within whatever constraints that might be limiting us, whatever we have to, to, to work with under those circumstances. That's really what user experience is about. I, I frequently am known for saying that UX is not just one thing. And a lot of people think that it's one thing. A lot of people set out to do UX and they only have their mind on one thing. Those people are the, the children of the siege, if you will. And I'm gonna digress here for a moment and give a shout out, but also call out a lot of people that are going into UX research today. There are a lot of people that are in research and seek to be researchers and don't have a broad knowledge of UX and the methods, methodologies, and the things that I'm referring to. They don't understand the four pillars of the discipline, usability and heuristics, information architecture, user experience research, which is one, and then there's a ton of sunset subsets under that, and then interaction and interface design. There's people that are interface designers that don't understand the other things. There's people that are doing research that don't understand the other things. And then you got these people that are that are engaging in these made up aspects of the discipline today and they don't understand what's going on from a broad perspective. And again, children of the siege, if you will, part of what I call the cult of UX. There's the cult of, react, uh, cult of UX and then there's real UX. And you always wanna make sure that you're part of the real aspect of UX today and not part of the cult and not the children of the siege. And, not, and you can recover yourself from any of those states, but they have to be called out because if we are going to recover from the siege, there needs to be a very huge awakening. But I, I don't want to digress too much here. What I am going to say, though, and what I, what I stopped to do that digression for was to point this out. If you are trying to be, and this is for the researchers out there, if you have your heart set on doing research, the more you understand about the discipline at large, the better researcher you'll be. If you're a researcher, but you don't understand anything about the design side of the house, you will make everything that's happening in a project revolve around your research and be associated with the research. Do we need the research? Yes, we need that data. We need to validate. We need to, to confirm design direction and the, the authenticity of it, things of that nature. But if you do research and you don't, the research, proper research, has to have design understanding at its core 
If not, what in the world are you researching? And and a lot of people are doing this today, and they just don't get it. They do not understand it at all. And, and I, I've seen researchers that try to sort of, they try to make the designers kowtow to them. And, and a lot of people out there are trying to separate UX research from UX design. We are one. We're all part of the same family. If you're doing UX work, you're part of the family. And we need to get this thing together and we need to cast off all this one-off and this setting up of new camps and establishing of fake positions and things of that nature. I love a post that I saw on on LinkedIn here in the last a couple of days or so where somebody was calling out fake UX researchers. There is fake UX research taking place today, folks. Those of you who followed me for any length of time are aware of the the talk that I did on how design processes are overrated. There are people who think that there's only one way to approach work. There's not. There's a ton of ways to approach the work. But some of these people, they swear up and down by whatever process they were quote unquote born into. And those people are misrepresenting the discipline. That is an act of siege. If you are swearing by design thinking, you need to cool your jets. If you're swearing by the double diamond, you need to cool your jets. If you're drunk off of the Luma system, you need to cool your jets. There's not one way to do anything. Matter of fact, any design that anybody comes up with, people who are siege-driven folks like to come up and criticize the work that somebody is doing because when they do that, they they, they feel like they're exalting themselves over the person who gave the design recommendations in the first place. Folks, no, 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 no. I've seen that. I've been victimized by it. You come up with a design, the design works. You followed the, the proper approaches. You've done things the right way. You do your research. You validate everything. Your work is data-driven, data-validated, data-supported, and then somebody wants to come behind that, and because they seek to compete and they seek to play these siege-oriented games, they start to criticize and talking about what they would have done better. You can say that about any design. And the violence that is at work today, the intellectual and cognitive violence that's at work today amongst UX professionals, it's all part of the siege, folks. So at any rate, I went a little bit more into that digression that I wanted to, but researchers, you need to learn more about UX as a whole. If you want to be a good researcher, please do that today. So we let you know what UX is. Now, the history of UX, really, if we got into the weeds, it goes back to the early 1900s when, when people were going into plants and conducting what we would refer to as ethnographic studies to try to optimize the work that was done in the automobile assembly line. That That's some of the earliest type of work that we can trace back to what we could refer to as early user experience type of work. It was experience design. And for those who didn't know it, do you know that experience design was the phrase that was first coined before UX was? And uh, uh, Don Norman was working for Apple in the mid-1990s, 93 to 95. 
He was working for Apple, and he was the first person to have UX in his job title. He was a UX architect. That didn't become normal until the mid-2000s. Folks, for people to to use that acronym, it, it didn't even catch steam. It was called experience design before that. For some reason, UX caught on, and whereas experience design didn't. So just wanted to, to give that little factoid out there. So let's not get caught up on the titles, but this is what we call it today. We call it UX. That's the most recognizable the most recognizable acronym or title. So we're, we're riding with that for now and, and just understand what somebody's saying when they say that, but let's, let's throw away the, the, the tents and let's stop pitching tents and setting up camps around these different titles. Just understand what somebody is when they say something. But at any rate, experience design, the early forms of UX, which was really in the form usually of an information architect or an interaction designer. The vast majority, over 90 some odd percent, 99% probably, everybody doing what we now know as UX work, were pretty much referred to under one of those two titles. Experience design, for some reason, never caught on. You, you can't really find much other than the Nathan Shetroff book that was called Experience Design. You really tend to not see that, that title anywhere. But at any rate, That happens in the mid-90s. The dot-com bust takes place. Everybody runs to the internet in 95 or so. That changed everything because all of the experience design work then started to center, for the most part, on the internet and where human-computer interaction was already a thing for some years before that. It wasn't until the advent of the internet that we started to take center stage, and mostly because the internet failed initially or was failing because people were going to the internet, but they were not considering the users, user-centered design, which was also something that was out there that didn't have a lot of traction, but people were already looking at user-centered design and the users were being left out in the cold. And that's what led to the dot-com bust because people were going to the internet, but they were not considering the users. They were just going out there and these, these really what might want to consider narcissistic design ruled at that time. And so everything sort of fell apart. And I like to think that it was the recognition of and commitment to and the discovery of the importance of users that led to UX starting to take center stage. And so you have the, the research that was done, some by IBM, some by NASA, where they were saying, and there's a range for every dollar they discovered that a company invests in user experience, they got anywhere from 10 to $250 back in return. Fantastic information, fantastic discovery. And most of the early work in UX was done at creative agencies. Once that, that research started to become more common knowledge and the corporations started to find out slowly but surely they started getting on board or getting on board. They first had the, the creative agencies would bring them in and hire them signing two, three, four, five year contracts, whatever for the agencies to come in and do this work. And they just partnered with the agencies and that's how things were done for the most part. But fast forward to 2011 And as these 
article started to show up in Forbes and Fast Company and all these other mainstream magazines and started to talk about how that UX is a thing of the future and this is an up and coming career. The the position and the, the the corporations were starting to open up the doors and starting to establish these user experience teams. And by now UX was a common acronym. It was starting to to be seen everywhere and companies were starting to change their information architect and interaction designer titles into UX. That became the the main acronym or moniker that was that was assigned to us. And but in 2011, we ended up running into a problem. And this is where the siege began. In 2011, you end up with this foundation. There were more positions than qualified people. It was a standard, and I'm focusing on the U.S., but it's not just the U.S. Uh, I said the U.S. I meant to, or U.S. I meant to say U.S. There, the the education we were always taught that in order to obtain a specialized role, a highly technical role, that you had to go to school for it. And but what they discovered was what people began to see was that hey, we've got all these U.S. positions out here. We don't have enough qualified people, but you know what? We also don't have educational resources and very, very few schools were establishing degree programs that supported this newly discovered discipline that's out here. Very, very few schools. I know University of Michigan had an HCI program. I believe University of Washington already had a program that helped with that, but very, very few. It, it was You couldn't go to any school pretty much and find a program that would help you if you were interested in going this route, you couldn't find a readily find a, a school that offered such a program. Along comes the spirit of enterprise and the spirit of enterprise said, Hey, there's not enough people qualified people to fill these roles. And there's not a lot of programs at schools and people don't want to spend that money anyway. And so in the name of free enterprise, in the name of capitalism, <laughs> so people started establishing what we now call UX boot camps. Now, boot camps already existed, but they existed for like programmings. If people wanted to be engineers, developers, the boot camps were around already before 2011. And folks thought, hey, they do this for the folks who were trying to learn how to be developers, why don't we do it for people who want to get into this user experience thing? Why don't we establish programs for that? And your career foundries and your your general assemblies, the, the, the biggest ones, come along and they establish programs. Never mind the fact that they really didn't take the time to understand UX, which the corporations were also guilty of the same thing. Never mind that there's a science to building a proper educational or learning experience. They just went ahead and did it. And, and I'm sure that they understood if they could get X number of people to enroll in these things, they were going to make a huge killing from a, from a, uh, a financial perspective, never taking the time to realize that they were not going to be able to produce people that were actually going to be, skilled enough, ready to do the job. 
I venture to say, in hindsight, that profit took center stage. Schools try to, they try to make money too, even if they claim to be nonprofit, but they do try to produce people who are qualified. The, the boot camps, it was more about, let's get people through here. Let's get big name people to endorse us. Uh, it was actually a time in my life that I endorsed boot camps. I, at the time, yeah, I know, I know, surprise, surprise. Uh, I used to teach a workshop in Metro Detroit, and I listed boot camps as a way that people could go out and learn. I, I didn't investigate them. I just knew that they were out there. I was guilty of the same exact thing that other people are when they enroll. But at any rate, the boot camps are launching. I, I don't anymore, if you didn't know that. No, I do not support boot camps at all in any way, form, or fashion, because I've had time to investigate them and find out what's going on. Bad, bad move. Keep your money in your pocket. Go go buy lots of Happy Meals with that money. Keep that money. But boot camps come along. Companies, as, as, as I stated, they were acknowledging the need for UX, but they still didn't understand it. So, And, and I remember, I'm talking about how the seeds came to be right now. The lack of UX understanding just opened the floodgates. And so people began to, they wanted these jobs. These, these articles that were showing up in the major magazines and on the internet were talking about how keen it was, how great of a position these were, and how much money you could make in UX. So people started to lie to get these roles. Now, we've got a really big problem that's starting to form here. More positions than qualified people, which means that unqualified people are going to start to get these roles. There's a lack of education, proper education established. There were so-called faux educational resources started to be established, which were going to be able to take advantage of the unsuspecting people. So just the whole snake oil sales thing was, was all in place. Companies were establishing UX teams, but they weren't understanding what it was. And there's a huge problem anytime an organization, anytime a corporation decides to, to take their business in a certain direction from a strategic perspective, but doesn't understand the strategic element that they're bringing in as part of their overall strategy. Eventually, that's going to become a hostile territory, and which is what it is. Today, we had all of these things starting to take shape, and folks, this is where the siege came in place. Oh, and I almost forgot to mention, misinformation started to increase. And, and I say this all the time. There was practically zero misinformation in the world of user experience prior to 2011. Today, it is rampant. Matter of fact, <laughs> it's amazing how often you will, how, how prevalent misinformation is that you are liable to look up UX. Go to TikTok, look up UX. Practically everybody that, that talks about UX on TikTok is, is sharing misinformation. You go to YouTube, misinformation. Medium, the vast majority of what's out there, misinformation. You go to LinkedIn, misinformation. We're gonna talk about that before we wrap up here today. So these are some of the crazy things. This is the siege that I started to see where people were starting to misrepresent the discipline. That's another part of the siege as well. Oversimplifying it, misrepresenting it, selling something, saying that it's UX when it really isn't. And now 
we have a field that at the time in 2011 had only been in the mainstream in corporate America for roughly 10 or 11 years. And now all of these crazy things are starting to happen. And, and remember the, the research from NASA and IBM for every dollar you invest, dot, 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 dot. But see, that only works if you really do UX the right way. If you hire the wrong people, if you don't do user experience the way it was originally structured, you don't get that. Remember, they did the research when there was no misinformation. They did the research when there were people who were on the teams that were actually doing the work. So that doesn't apply in many instances today. You don't get that huge ROI. Matter of fact, not only do you get a huge ROI in UX today, it goes in the opposite direction. It, it actually, you get negative 250 uh, uh, impact up to for every dollar that you think you're investing in UX. So so that's this is how the siege took on form. So now let me talk to you about some, some examples of the siege. And we'll shed a light, turn the light on for a few people here. There are a lot of juniors today and also what I call cowardly and entitled seniors, people who've never been impacted detrimentally by what's going on with UX, people that when they start talking about UX, nobody questions them or they don't, they don't really get a lot of flack from anybody. And, and, and a lot of UXers do get flack. That, that's part of the job, actually, that you have to learn how to deal with, which is why we say it's not just about doing the job. It's about a lot of other things. So you have to be ready to manage that type of stuff. But what I'm getting at here is that, as an example of Siege, is that these people today frequently try to tell actual seniors and people who fight for the well-being of this discipline what's correct, what's desirable. And they, they don't, they've never lifted a finger to do anything before. Uh, you will constantly see somebody with three years or less of experience. And this is not a bad thing. If you got three years or less, don't take this the wrong way. I'm going to challenge you to put your, make sure your thick skin is on so you can hear what I'm saying here. These people, I see these people on a regular basis. They call themselves straightening out, informing, providing counsel to somebody who dwarfs them in experience. We never would have considered doing something like that, not to mention the fact that they're incorrect in the information that they're sharing, but it's just a, a, an act of arrogance, sheer and utter arrogance to do such a thing. Have you ever seen a little kid? I'm sure you have. You ever had a conversation with a little kid or over, over uh, happened to, to, to see, to witness a conversation of a child with an adult and the adult tries to tell the child something and the child swears up and down that the adult is wrong and you're sitting there and you're looking at the conversation and you know that the adult that's talking is correct but this kid rejects anything that they can't comprehend. So it's that same thing. <laughs> that same type of thing is happening in UX. I see people a week, a year, two years, three years, five and six, seven and eight sometimes. I see people up to, I mean, a lot of years who are in the business of trying, call themselves straightening out somebody who's a senior and the funny thing is, they're not fighting for the well-being of the discipline. They really don't know anything about the topic that they're addressing. They just start to engage in some type of a power play. They don't like the fact that that person is saying something. They don't like the way that that person is making somebody feel. So they jump in and offer this 
this really false sense of security in the form of a misdirected and gaslighting oriented conversation. And, and But this is all a product of this age. It's all a product of this age. When Jesse James, James Garrett had something to say in 2004, we listened. When Christina Watke had something to say in 2001, 2002, we listened. When Alan Cooper had something to say in 1999, we listened. When, when I mean, wow, I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on and on. When Susan Weinshank had something to say about what was going on in the world of research and how psychology impacts the design work that we're doing, we just sat back and we listened. You didn't turn around and try to tell her what to do or try to inform her, none of these people. But today, those of us who've been in the in the business for 20 plus years now, we don't get that same consideration. You'll, you'll go to training at work and they'll say things like, you know, you gotta assume good intent on the behalf of the person you think you might criticize. And then they want you to do it to other people, but they don't do it to you. <laughs> the hypocrisy that is at work in, in UX today is off of the charts. It is amazing. And, and it's not just juniors. Juniors are notorious for it. But there's a lot of cowardly seniors who do the same thing. They don't lift a finger to stand up for the discipline. As long as they get a check, they don't care. As long as everything's quiet about around them, they don't care. But they're willing to sell out. If they can get that peace and quiet, they'll sell out. And they'll let the dirt be supreme. I'm not one of those people. So, and I know a lot of other people that are not going to stand there and just tolerate that. So, juniors and cowardly seniors abound today. Trying to tell seniors, people they have no business trying to give advice to, uh, which is uh, just wrong in and of itself. Uh, these are, again, problems associated with the with the seeds. When you see that, know that there is a problem. Here's an actual quote. as another example that I saw on... LinkedIn, somebody said that HCI, which is an acronym that stands for Human Computer Interaction, is from 1980 to 1990, and today it is obsolete. That couldn't be further from the truth, folks. This is the, the misrepresentation of what UX is. Human Computer Interaction is at the core of what we do. In principle, you can go and pick up any old HCI book and the stuff that was in that book, with the exception of the fact that the interface that they're talking about might be old, but take the principles that they're talking about, they are still applicable to everything we're doing today. And don't forget, human brains haven't changed. We're still, the work that they were doing in 1980 was addressing human brains, and we're addressing those same exact human brains that have been the same for eons. So don't let anybody fool you and gaslight you and, and tell you that HCI is, out, is obsolete, that it's outdated. It is not. I had somebody once tell me that the heuristics that I was presenting were outdated. Number one, they couldn't prove it. Number two, when you're dealing with proper heuristics, if anything about the heuristic you're addressing has been modified or updated because maybe the form factor change or things of that nature, then the heuristic changes in accordance with that. It always runs parallel with what you're addressing. The truth of the matter is the person who said that, who ironically is trying to hire, I, I saw recently a director of UX, which is hilarious because they don't care about user experience at that particular company, but we talked about that in the last two weeks. 
The only reason they said that was because they didn't like the fact that I had said that their baby was ugly and they didn't want to deal with it. So their their product had flaws and we were we were partnering with them and we were trying to achieve wins for everybody. That's another thing about UX. You have to be willing to make unpopular statements if you're going to work in UX and somebody's not going to like it. But these statements are not personal. They're only made to achieve success for everyone. That person wasn't ready. <laughs> they rolled something out that wasn't ready for prime time. I called it out. I let, here's my heuristic analysis. Here's the problem I found. Here's my recommendation for how to fix it. And all he could say was that my heuristics were outdated. And then he kept rolling that thing out. They probably blew up on him. And it was too late. I was long gone by the time it blew up. <laughs> and they all he could say is, man, you know, he told me that. I'm pretty sure that happened. That happens a lot. I've seen it a lot over the course of my career. So, folks, UX is you can pick up a book from 1998. You can pick up North Nathan Shedroff's Experience Design book. And everything that he talked about in that book is still worth something today. The old about face stuff written by Alan Cooper, that information is still critical to us today. Alan Cooper wrote The Inmates Are Running the Asylum, which is a great book to read when it comes to helping us to understand how to manage stakeholders and clients and how to how to be the voice of reason in the midst of when people are pushing you back and things of that nature. That book is critical. It was written some time ago, but it's still relevant today. Good UX materials have a very, very, very long shelf life. I mean, Henry Dreyfus wrote what we might consider to be one of the first UX-related books. I believe it's called Design for Change, if I remember correctly, or Designing for Change. There's something on that line. But look up Henry Dreyfus. Look up the book on, on Amazon. You can get it. You can probably get it on iBooks as well. Get a hard copy if you want. Uh, but this person, the things that this person wrote about in their book, trying to meet user needs in like the 1950s, still applies in 2022. So don't let anybody fool you and trick you into thinking that old UX principles are not, are not applicable or relevant today. They very much so are. Another crazy, crazy quote, and this is Siege-related stuff. They said, you can't talk to companies about UX maturity. This happened on LinkedIn this past week. They were talking about how I said you need to, when you're in an interview, if you listen to the podcast, you heard me say this before, when you're in an interview, it's good to ask a company about their UX maturity. You want to know where they are. You want to see what their response is. You want to see where you'd come into play with regard to that, how you'd, come, how you'd go to work there, how you'd bring value, where do you fit in, where do they stand? Because a low UX maturity company can a lot of times you might regret going there because it could be an extremely volatile work environment for UX professionals. So you do want to know. But somebody said, you can't talk to companies about UX maturity during the interview process because it will scare them. That is one of probably one of the top 10 most ludicrous statements I have ever heard somebody make. And if you believe that, if you're worried about scaring somebody, you're in trouble. And I guarantee you that the person that's afraid they're going to scare somebody is also drowning in toxic positivity as well. UX is, it's amazing. We are at the, in the professional world, we are at the pinnacle of reality. The more you embrace reality, the more you are a realist, the better you're going to be able to function. 
in UX. So this is not about scaring anybody or hurting anybody's feelings or this other goofy stuff that people with thin skin talk about. That kind of thing will damage you. You will end up misrepresenting the discipline. You will end up, that person will end up becoming an order taker. They will not be able to stand there and, and, and give the hard word when the hard word is needed. When somebody needs to push back, They'll let they'll get pushed over, and then UX is misrepresented, and then in the long run, they say you're not bringing value. The next thing you know, you're all on the street, and it traces back to somebody not taking a stand and worried about how you who you're going to scare. That's really terrible. It is one of the most ludicrous statements I have ever heard. I had to get a screenshot of it. It was so bad. Next quote. And you're going to see this as we wrap up today with an example. This is a bit of an extended episode today, but when you stand for quality, when you try to help people understand the standards, I actually had somebody once on LinkedIn tell me that we don't have any standards in UX. That's another example of siege. We don't have any standards in UX. We have plenty of standards in UX. And I began to tell the person about some of the standards and they had only been doing UX for about two years or so. And, you know, here's somebody, again, it's the little kid talking to the adult again and trying to refute everything the adult says when the adult knows that what they're saying is right. And the, the younger person actually has no idea and really shouldn't be talking that much because they know they don't know, but, but their arrogance won't allow them to be quiet. When you're standing and you're, when you're advocating for quality, you get accused of being a gatekeeper. Folks, that was born out of the siege. Nobody talked, when you talked about quality in 2008, nobody talked about being a gatekeeper. When you talked about quality in 2004, 2002, 1998, nobody talked about being a gatekeeper because everybody wanted to deliver quality work. But there's a lot of people in UX today coming into UX or in UX, they don't really have an interest in quality. They just want to have a UX job. And a lot of people who want the job, don't want to do the work, and so when you start talking about quality, you become the enemy of that group of individuals. And so the concept of gatekeeping, wanting to keep people out of jobs or making people adhere to a certain set of standards, things of that nature, that came out of the gaming world and it came out of the, out of the, the slang dictionaries because gatekeeping is actually respected in a lot of other organizations. As a matter of fact, let me give you an example. I was gonna save this to the end, but sometimes when we're talking about the need for standards in UX, we talk about other fields and they may not necessarily be parallel fields to UX, but they are in, in, in the way that they're executed and they're where, where they fit per se, but they do parallel from a standpoint of the fact that it's a skilled discipline, uh, the legal world, the accounting world, other worlds like that, the medical world, these are skilled disciplines that you have to be, you have to be skilled in order to do this. You don't just come in and just do UX and go home and that's it. You do need to know certain principles. You need to understand certain things. It is something you grow into. You do have to continue learning the rest of your career in order to thrive. And, and so I want to take you down history, uh, a little history lesson, uh, memory lane. What I want to say, um, we really wouldn't constitute memory lane. Let's just say it'll be a little history lesson. And let me share with you some factoids about the world of accounting. Now, number one, accounting has been around for thousands of years. Thousands. And it's funny that people expect us to achieve the same level of maturity as a discipline 
as accounting, this is where it's unfair to mention accounting, to mention the legal world, to mention the medical world, because these these positions, these disciplines have been around for for centuries and and uh, for millennia, and and uh, and they've reached their state of maturity because of what they've gone through as disciplines. We've only been around 20 years. There's no way in the world we're going to reach what they've reached. But at any rate, just thought I'd throw that little factoid in there. Whether you, you may not have realized this, and I got this information. Go and look it up on Investopedia.com. They have the history of accounting that's there. It didn't become a formally structured discipline until the late 1800s, folks. The late 1800s. After having been around for millennia, <laughs> accounting wasn't formally structured. It wasn't until it was in the early 1900s when the United States started charging people income tax, which was a few years later, like after the title of the CPA came along. And you know, to be a CPA, you have to have three years of practice and you have to pass state exams or you're not, a, you can't be an accountant. You won't be a CPA anyway. In a lot of instances, a CPA is required if an accountant is going to be a part of a particular operation. So, and yeah, we are heading that way from a UX perspective. And one day it will happen. And maybe it'll be, it won't be until the pain of dealing with all of these, these posers, retrofits and upstarts that it starts to sink in. But we are headed in that direction. Just give you a little hint, the hint, hint there. But this change, the 20 years after becoming formally structured, demand skyrocketed. And it, it skyrocketed in parallel with the launch of the income tax in the early 1900s. So, but the bottom line is, I mean, today, yeah, accountants are everywhere, CPAs are everywhere, and they're respected. That's the big thing. There's no confusion about accounting. Standards were indeed established. And because of the standards, people could trust the folks that were operating in these positions. And that's where we need to be trying to go from a UX perspective, but we can't because, not right now, because there's too many people in the discipline that have absolutely no interest in being properly structured. They have no interest in quality. They have no interest accounting achieved what it achieved because it recognized and embraced gatekeeping. And until user experience embraces gatekeeping, real gatekeeping, quality advocacy, we're going to continue to struggle. Companies are going to continue to fight against us. Because remember, it was the leaders. And I didn't say this. Let me mention this now. It was the leaders. It was the the people, the C-suite, the people that were signing the checks that ended up acknowledging the importance of the accounting discipline, the the peop, the accountants signing off on making sure that they have an accountant, knowing that if you don't have that person in place, your business is going to suffer. That realization has not been achieved yet, even though people are aware of the research for every dollar, dot, dot, dot. Companies know about that. I've seen companies actually fight against it. They refuse to, they refuse to embrace it. I presented it before and had folks refuse to embrace it. So it's going to be a while, (laughs) just so you know, it's going to be a while before companies actually go there, but folks have to embrace gatekeeping if we're going to get anywhere. More examples of the siege. 
Most UX leadership roles are occupied by people who don't either, they either don't have a history doing the work, they have no UX experience whatsoever, they have a very narrow viewpoint of the work. So some people actually hate UX, but they're still running the, the UX teams. Some people are unqualified and get the positions because the company doesn't understand what UX is. So they hire people who have a history with, with aesthetics, such as art directors or creative directors or things of that nature. They hire them to run the UX teams. And the person getting the job is not going to tell you they're not qualified. They're going after the check. They're going after the position. So they're like, you know, you, you know, you really should hire a person that knows something about UX into this role. They're not going to do that. So you have this massive flood. The vast majority of people that I have seen in my career running UX teams, either, again, they fit these descriptions. They either have never worked in UX or they have a narrow viewpoint of UX. They don't understand it. And when I say that they have a very narrow viewpoint of the work, I'm saying that they are over immersed in processes, only work for one or two companies. And so they end up with a lack of diversity. Uh, some people, they, they've come up the ranks. They've been working for their company for eight years and they get put in a UX role. They don't understand how business works at large. They only know how business works in that company. And so when something like that happens, that, that, that narrow viewpoint becomes extremely skewed and problematic. The person's actually not as, not as qualified as, as other folks might be. And then last, the last thing I want to bring up here when it comes to examples of siege, there are many people who attempt to redefine the discipline or, and or rebrand old processes as something new with a different name. And so they're operating in manipulation. That's where UX writing came from. That's where object-oriented UX came from. Uh, people who never knew anything about information architecture and content strategy, rebrand parts of UX. Uh, people who who swear up and down that design thinking is the way to go, even though design thinking as it on its best day is nothing but a rehash of old UX types of approaches without the users. <laughs> and that's when you remove users from UX, you just have X. It's no longer UX. And so you're going to miss something that is critical in order to, to achieve success today. So folks, now, what does all this have to do, if we begin to wrap up here, what does all this have to do with the job landscape? All of these things confuse the job landscape. I talked about leaders, unqualified leaders. I talked about people fabricating experience to enter the field. A lot of these people are already in the positions. Many of them are in the positions that you're going after when you're interviewing with a company. You think, you go, we go into interviews, I said this in the last couple of weeks, thinking that the people interviewing us know what they're doing. We go into these, the, these, these sessions and we think that they really want to hire a UX person. Many times they don't. So the siege has created a whirlpool, basically, that it's created this, this mirage that you think a company knows UX or you think they want UX or you think they're doing UX when a lot of times they're not and they don't. And so it's, we have to be, become good and better at identifying the impact of the siege up front so that you can navigate 
accordingly once you find out what's going on, whether you're in the job hunting stage, whether you get in the position and you find out that there's something terribly, terribly wrong, you've got to navigate that. If you're, if you're trying to get a job, maybe you don't have a job and you're really looking for a job and the only thing that's available is something that really doesn't have a lot to offer from a UX perspective. Well, and, and again, I said before, I'm not telling you not to take those types of jobs, but you are going to need to know how to navigate if you treasure your sanity. And that's not a joke. You're going to have to understand how to navigate these scenarios and you're going to need somebody to, to connect with on the inside that also knows what real UX is. And then, then you folks are going to have to support one another. There are teams. Matter of fact, the largest UX teams are the most dysfunctional and they have the most siege oriented components in place. But when you go in there, there's a way to go in there and thrive individually you know, maybe for a while, maybe not for a long time, but there's got to be a way to be able to go in there, bring value. Because a lot of times I've seen UX teams that actually have no desire to bring value whatsoever. They just want to exist. I know that sounds painful and it sounds unrealistic. And somebody's going, somebody who's been doing UX for, for a very short period of time will hear me say that and say that that's malarkey. And I'm telling you what I saw. So it's fine. You'll run smack dab into it. And I hope you can make it out of it if you ignore me today because these things do exist. And I've seen instances where the more you try to do quality work, the more you're shot down, discouraged, sabotaged. Yeah, <laughs> it, it actually gets that bad. So the moral of this lesson, the more of this episode, I should say, is that everything is not as it seems when you're operating in the world of UX. Everything is not as it seems. The siege has pretty much become so rampant that you are pretty much guaranteed to encounter it. And everybody under the sound of my voice, it's highly likely you already have encountered the siege. But the name of the game is what are we going to do about it? And the more people that we can convince to subscribe to proper aspects of user experience, the proper way to do the work, to embrace the four pillars, to, to, to renounce the fake it till you make it mindset, which a lot of these siege, that, that's a child of the siege that, that embraces that today. A lot of UXers do. People who are running around, I'm Google certified. Uh, no, you're not because Google doesn't give a certification for UX. They give a certificate of completion. But if you believe that you're certified, you are a child of the siege. Basically because you're basically drinking Kool-Aid. You're, you're believing a lie. And that's really what being a child of the siege is all about. If you want to be a real UXer, if you want to escape and overcome Issues associated with the cult of UX, you must become a realist. And some of the things you come across are going to be uncomfortable, but it's good because you can navigate. You can navigate your position. You can navigate your career. You can, you can be a genuine help to other people. And most importantly, you will represent the discipline the right way 
and in representing the discipline the right way, it will have long-lasting, positive, desirable effects upon the discipline of UX. So when you represent us the right way, then the people, the, the C-suite and the stakeholders and the leaders out there who see and interact with us, it'll, it'll properly shape what they think from an expectations perspective, from a, a value perception perspective, all of these things. This is what we need to achieve today in UX. And, and when the siege wins out, all of those things are overturned. And then we become victims. I'm sure many of you, if you're still listening, I'm sure you don't want to be a victim. Today, I'm sure you'd rather thrive in the world of user experience. And so that's what I'm offering you. That's what I'm laying before you today. So I hope as we begin to wrap up here, I hope everybody embraces it. I hope you you heard what I said here today. This is what the siege is all about. This is why we need to understand the siege. It's hurting us. And I'll close with one more example. Today, there was a, a discussion that was taking place on, on LinkedIn. And some of us have been addressing this for years where people will put two designs up and they'll say, which one do you like better, A or B? And, and, and I've, been, I've been warning people about this for years. I've been telling people about this for years. When you put that little thing up on LinkedIn or wherever you put it, this misrepresents the discipline. This is not what we're about. They're also usually aesthetically oriented, so it lends itself to that whole UX, UI thing. There's so many things wrong with it. But in this conversation that was going on on LinkedIn, again, somebody comes in and they call themselves informing me about something, which is you're already wrong. You, you've already lost uh, in, in a case such as that. But at any rate, a person said, well, and he wasn't the first person. Actually, two people came in and they referred to it as an A-B test. And they said that if this is an A-B test, it has a place out here. And I came back and I told him and I said, no. I said, it's misrepresenting the discipline. And the person labeled it as research. And if that's all you're doing is A-B tests, then that's not research anyway, because you don't just do one type of research and say that you've done research. But again, you're misrepresenting the discipline. Here's something I didn't tell them. So I say this just for you folks that are listening to this podcast. An A-B test is not, <laughs> does not consist of putting two designs in front of people and asking them which one they like best. An A-B test involves placing two full designs in front of people with one variation, one difference between the two, having someone perform a task and looking at which one is more successful. That is an A-B test, not asking people which one they like better. So when I told people that that's misrepresenting the discipline, I don't think they even understand what I'm getting at. I don't even think they understand what I mean. And so, that, but folks, children of the siege, children of the siege. So we have to properly represent the discipline, properly represent the discipline, 
Make sure that we are, when you have an opportunity to mentor or educate, educate people about any aspect of user experience, you must do it accurately. You must do it from a practical perspective and give them an opportunity to really sort of sink themselves into it, immerse themselves into it from a cognitive perspective so they can actually get it. But anytime somebody oversimplifies a discipline, that person is a child of the siege. They're creating a problem for the discipline as a whole. And that, folks, has long-lasting effect. And none of us want to be there when when the consequences of that thing start to come forward. So understand the siege today, understand its impact, and understand it's time for more of us to start countering it by representing the discipline the right way. Folks, that is all the time that we have for today in this in this extended episode of the World of UX. I don't usually do long solo shows, but but this one today is needed. So, but thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for those of you out there listening to us for the first time. I hope you take these things to heart because the siege is a critical, critical, critical uh, uh, challenge that we need to overcome today. But until next time, it's time to sign off. This is Darren Hood, the host of The World of UX. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.